Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce the guest this week, just have a couple of announcements about stuff. The first is that this coming Saturday, March 18th, I will be in Newark, New Jersey, participating in a festival about Philip Roth, about the novelist Philip Roth. Uh, this is a festival called Philip Roth Unbound. It's going to take place over that whole weekend. And I am going to be moderating a panel, also participating in the panel. I'm the moderator, and I've got big things to say, called What Gives You the Right? And it's about who's allowed to write about what. We're going to talk about, in particular, The Human Stain, which is probably my favorite Philip Roth novel, if not my favorite novel, period. Whether it would be published today, if first-time author would be able to publish a book like that today, if Philip Roth were alive today, would he be able to publish that? It's going to be very cool. So if you are in the tri-state area, come to Newark. You don't hear that every day. And uh, come check everything out. It's going to be very cool. Okay. The second thing is uh, Minneapolis. If you can't make it to Newark, maybe you want to come to Minneapolis for the Unspeakeasy retreat that we're going to have in May. Like I said last week, in addition to the overnight offering, May 8th through 11th, we're going to offer a day-only portion on May 9th and 10th. A lot of locals have expressed interest in coming just for the day. So that is going to be available. It's filling up quickly, especially the overnight portion. But if you are interested in either offering, go to theunspeakeasy.com and get in touch with me. Lots of big unspeakeasy things coming up soon. So just get ready to hear more about that. Okay, my guest. It's not the normal kind of guest this week. He's not a writer or an academic or a substacker. He is a choreographer. Lincoln Jones is the director of the American Contemporary Ballet Company, which he founded in 2011. Lincoln took an unusual path to dance, and he has a unique approach to dance performance and production. He came across my radar because of his unlikely involvement in the new free speech debates. He'll tell the story of that in this interview, and we spend some time talking about how even in the fine arts, even in ballet, things have really been affected by the censoriousness of the current moment. But most of all here, Lincoln talks about dance and about what choreography means to him, especially the choreography and dance of Fred Astaire. He talks about how movement just kind of maps on to the human experience in ways that we're often not aware of. I've never had a conversation quite like this on the podcast or anywhere. And I will tell you that even if dance is not your thing, I highly recommend this. The bonus portion, as always, is just as good, if not better. Lincoln talks about how he feels about TikTok dances, why he appreciates Michael Jackson, and best of all, what his favorite dance movies are. Is it La La Land or Flashdance? You know what you have to do to find out. Join the Substack at megandown.com. Get all this extra stuff. But for now, here is my conversation, the main part of it, with Lincoln Jones. Lincoln Jones, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you so much. You are a dancer and a choreographer. You're the director of the American Contemporary Ballet in Los Angeles, which you co-founded in 2011. This is not a podcast about dance. We mostly talk to writers, academics, 
other podcasters about social issues around here. Many of those issues have to do with free speech, intellectual freedom, that kind of thing. So you are the first guest I've had from the dance world. And I guess my first question is, how did a nice choreographer like you wind up in a place like this? Probably the the black square or my my lack of a black square. Mm. Um, okay. <laughs> I like this story. Uh, the black square yeah. is the path to this podcast. I mean, black I think it was inevitable, square. actually. But uh, but that was the, the thing that probably set it off. Yeah. Okay. So what happened exactly? And when was this? Uh, so this was in 2020. I think it was it must have been early June, late May of 2020. Uh, after the death of George Floyd, there was this sort of all of a sudden incredible pressure to post a Black Square in support of Black Lives Matter uh, on companies' Instagrams. And I didn't want to do that for a number of reasons. One, we're not a political organization. We're not a human rights organization. We're an arts organization. And I also didn't think that I had the prerogative to represent my dancers on a political level. Uh, that wasn't why they were contracted with the company. That's not why they joined the company. Uh, they joined because presumably they liked my work as, as a choreographer and the company's repertory. Uh, so I explained to them that, you know, while they were, of course, free to use their own voices to express whatever opinion they like, it wasn't my right to do that for them. And on another level, I also just uh, thought it was, you know, that wasn't the only tragedy that had ever happened. And it wasn't the last one that was going to happen. And I, and I didn't see a future in which we ranked uh, tragedies or issues and, and became a, a medium for those. It would just completely take us away from what we were doing. And it's not what we were meant to do or what we're good at. So who was pressuring you to post the Black Square? Uh, there was a, actually, there was a number of, of, it was coming from a number of places. There were advisors to the company and people within the company. For the most part, the, the dancers were wonderful. Um, and so I want to give them, they were, they were really wonderful in, in trying to understand everything. But there were, there were even like Instagram pages that were dance related that were, had told our dancers that they were going to put them on lists if they didn't do this, if they didn't put up their, if, if the company, I guess, didn't put up the black square, which was very strange. And so the, you know, the dancers were calling in tears saying, I'm, you know, I'm essentially being threatened by this. And, and I, we got a lot of social media backlash also. What kind of lists would they be put on? I don't know. It, it, <laughs> that was unclear to me. I guess, I, I mean, I got like a lot of comments saying, we're watching you, uh, my generation is watching, you're a coward, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. So describe what your company is like. What kind of, what's your repertoire? What's your sort of overall vision, aesthetic? What kind of dancers do you tend to work with? All that. Um, my Yeah. So my vision is centered around the idea that I think that dance could be much more culturally centered than it is, that the divide between classical and popular dance is not due to something inherent within them, but uh, due to a way of practicing them that uh, I thought could be better. And I also think that I I'm pretty out of sync with the way that I think most 
dance is made today, at least most concert dance or what you might call classical dance, the dance that I think a lot of ballet companies and dance companies produce. I think my my exemplar of a of great dance is Fred Astaire. Mm-hmm. And of course, his his, ball, his, his dancing uh, didn't extend into the range of motion and, and things that, and, and maybe musical range that that you know ballet usually does. But he was so incredibly inventive, and most importantly, he was so musical. And a lot of people, I think, don't know this, but the man who's considered probably the greatest choreographer of the 20th century, George Balanchine, the greatest classical choreographer. His favorite dancer was Fred Astaire as well, as was Brzezhnikov. Brzezhnikov said Fred Astaire gave him an inferiority complex. Wow. So I, I think that's, I'm sorry, when I explain this, I, I suppose that's kind of, I'll try to make it more specific. No, it's very relevant. And actually, did Fred Astaire have a ballet background? No, he didn't uh, at all. I mean, he maybe, I think, took a few classes, but it was mostly tap. And, and I think that because of the tap it and the fact that he was a drummer it made him a so musical and made music his focus. And I think that's what's missing from dance today. I think that a lot of dance is either trying to be conceptually artistic or it's attempting to be dramatically, it's trying to work in a dramatic medium. Mm -hmm. But I think what dance is, is what we do when we hear music we like. And I think that that's what great dance can be built on. So what is the hiring process for your company? First of all, how many dancers do you have? Like how often are you auditioning people? Like what's the turnover? Just how does all of that work? Um, We audition every year. Um, Usually there's a very little turnover, I would say in general. We you know, have dancers who will retire. Uh, Over the pandemic, a number of dancers uh, retired everywhere. Um, so we had to, to so our numbers are actually down from what they were. I think we were at about 21 and now we're at like 14 um, and still building back up from that. But yeah, we, we hold open auditions. Anybody can audition and um, we do so in like we go to New York, audition there and audition here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here being Los Angeles. Oh, Los Angeles. Yes. And is there anything in particular you are looking for in a dancer? I think I read an article about your company somewhere that said that you tended to have taller dancers than many companies. That is true. Yeah. Uh, we, I think that there's, I think most ballet companies sort of the, the sweet spot for a lot of them is, I don't know, maybe five, five to five, seven. And the problem with tall dancers is that the taller they get, uh, the harder it is to find men who can partner them because once they go up on point, they get really tall. And so you need then an extremely tall guy to, to uh, get them. And tall guys, guys, period, are hard to get. But I really like the way long limbs and, and tall dancers look when they move. So I, I do focus on tall dancers. And what kind of lives do, do these dancers have? Is this their full-time job? Are they working jobs on the side? Like, what's the, what's the sort of life of, of one of your dancers? It is full-time, uh, but they also do work jobs on the side simply because of the economics of ballet. Some of them teach or teach Pilates or, or things like that. Right. But they, they spend, you know, a, a normal work week with us. Okay. So basically what happened? So you have this collection of dancers and it's the summer of 2020. You, as the director of the company, 
make a choice not to post the black square. Did you think it was just pretty innocuous at the time or did you sort of, (laughs) did you have any idea what the ramifications of this decision would be? No, I had an idea. I think that maybe not such a complete idea as I do now, but given the pressure and the the panic around it, uh, I had a pretty good idea. But you did it anyway. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't see it as an option. I think that um, the, you know, the artistic integrity of the company and the work is the thing that is most important to me. And uh, to compromise that would have been tantamount to suicide for me. Interesting. Okay. So the way I found you is that you are involved with FAIR, the um, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And you've spoken up about intellectual freedom and free speech. And it's it's really interesting to hear from somebody in the dance world talking about this. We tend to have a lot of like academics and journalists and those types of people. But the fine arts, the free speech visibility is not has not been there as much. So maybe you can take us through like sort of the process, like where you sort of discovered as a, as a free speech hero and kind of plucked from (laughs) plucked from intellectual (laughs) obscurity and thrust into this hideous spotlight. Um, Well, I think so. I, when this happened all of a sudden, well, there was two, two aspects of it. One, I think over the past, even four years before that, I had seen an increasing call for an ideological submission, basically, to to certain ideas that I thought were anti-free speech and more importantly, and well, not more importantly, but anti-art. I was really concerned about them. And then when this happened, I was really concerned, one, about the fact that Uh, So many people I talked to said, I don't agree with this, but I have to do it. And that was alarming to me. Don't agree with with posting the black square that with going along with that. Or just any, any number of things, posting the black square, um, posting a DEI statement as part of your mission. Um, it sort of seemed like one big package to me at the time. Right. We're going to, we're going to say black square as a euphemism for this entire phenomenon. Yes. So yeah. So there was this this notion that you you had to do it and that even if you didn't agree with it, you had to do it. And I myself, you know, I started realizing a number of years ago, there's just a number of things you can't say. And I, you know, I, I wasn't going to say anything, anybody that I wasn't going to say anything that someone wanted me to say that I didn't want to say. But I was, I realized I was self-censoring and not saying things that I wanted to say. and so. When this all came around, I thought there were two imperatives. One, I had to find some new ways to fund the company because suddenly all these grants came with a requirement for a commitment to DEI. And it wasn't the first time I'd encountered that. We had had a grant um, from the city or county or something. I think it was around in 2017. And this following year, it came with a new DEI commitment requirement. And I said, no. And so we turned that down. Okay. And what does that mean? So what does that mean that you have to hire? Is this a hiring practice thing or is it sort of beyond that? You know, everybody words it differently and it seems both vague and specific at the same time. But the, the crux of it seems to be you have to consider race in your hiring practices. 
And the, the other crux of it to me is that you are being required to make a certain specific idea of social justice part of your mission. And both of those things were not things that I wanted to do. I, I didn't want to make race part of the hiring practices for sure. I believe in treating people as individuals. We have, of course, people of many different races that have come through the company. And I can't imagine what it would do to morale to have people think that there was, I mean, ballet dancers work so, so hard. And I, I think it's, it's kind of like if the director was like sleeping with a dancer or something, it would make it, it would make morale very low because I think people would suddenly start thinking, oh, well, this person's getting preference because of this. And I, I can't imagine both that and also having somebody work hard, get to the top of the company, be doing great roles, and then all of a sudden wondering like, oh, am I here because of my race? Uh, that to me would... And, and also, I think it's just like the golden rule. Like I would hate to be known for my race or my gender as a choreographer. I, I said this with Fair, a video I did for Fair, but I had this uh, friend that was a composer, Charles Warren, and he was gay, but he was also uh, just a great composer. And he hated it, hated it when he would be called a gay composer. Mm -hmm. And I understand why you want to be considered an artist, not an artist, you know, in this category. Yeah. I mean, everybody used to hate that kind of thing. I remember talking to authors years ago, decades ago, and people would be complaining that they were in like the gay fiction section or something or like, you know, gay, <laughs> right. like, you know, gay studies or gay interest, I guess. And it's like, you know, people would be like, well, like I'm a novelist. I wrote a novel. Like, What's wrong with you? But yeah, so okay. But I, I diverted from this story. I, I yeah. did. You want me to? I can. Yeah. So the um, please no. Go ahead. The so anyway the um, this stuff started to happen, and then so I, I realized I needed to find a replacement source of funding. So I had to find people that agreed with my values, I guess, on that front, because it seemed like every single conversation, all they wanted to talk about was DEI, and every grant was now coming with this requirement. And then the other thing was, is I just thought this is bad for the country if we, it's essentially just advocating tribalism, it seemed like to me. And I just think there's no good end to that. So I simultaneously was looking for ways to fund the company and ways to speak out, but I didn't want to speak out as the, like, I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to use the company to do it because that was my whole principle was this should be about art. So I just started for looking around for someone that I thought was could give a, an opportunity to speak about it. And I found a group called the Philanthropy Roundtable. And they said, hey, will you come on a podcast? And I thought it was a perfect sort of venue because they dealt with uh, philanthropy and the arts. and Or not the arts, actually, just more philanthropy in general. And I thought this was a bad trend in philanthropy. So it kind of killed two boards with one stone. And then from there on, people wanted to hear about it. And what was the result of that? Well, um, the I, I did that podcast, and then I, I was asked to speak um, in a, a number of other places. Uh, Fair uh, asked me to join, and that was exciting because they were the first group to, you know, at the time there was a lot of there was starting to be pushback in education and in healthcare and and, venue, and things like that, but. To me, there had been this just entire tidal wave in the arts world. Yeah. And no one was talking about that. And I thought, like, you know, a society has several pillars there's the arts, there's 
medicine, there's science, you know, there, there's these things. And it, and it seemed like there was always this consensus to push like, well, all scientists believe this, or, you know, it, they were trying to gain consensus from each group. And I thought, I know that this is not the consensus among arts, but it is very much appearing to be so. And so I thought somebody's got to say something so that, you know, people know, and then other people will feel comfortable speaking. Why do you think there was so little pushback in the arts? Is it because a lot of artists are just so focused on their art that they're not sort of looking at what's going on in the culture? They're not sitting on Twitter all day watching people fight about these things? Because it seems to me like that's a lot of it. Yeah, you know, it's actually, I've, I've asked this question of a number of people because I've wanted to understand for myself. First of all, a few years before 2020, I was invited to a, uh, a dance conference, conference from a national organization. And I looked at the, uh, the schedule and what things were going to be discussed. And it was all about race and gender and everything. So this had happened, I think, on some level well before. I think the, the best answer that I've heard is someone said artists tend to be sympathetic. And so, you know, this was presented as people are suffering and you want to be against that suffering. And when presented that way, of course, you know, the answer is yes, I want to help people. But I think that what you said is, is accurate in that, you know, maybe artists aren't spending a lot of time as I'm not, like you, you sent me a story the other night, I hadn't even heard about it yet. Um, artists are not <laughs> spending a lot of time, maybe like reading all sides of an issue or, you know, keeping up on the ins and outs of, of various issues. So they maybe are, are, were presented with a very loud, singular voice in the media and got on what they thought to be a, a very important cause. Yeah. And I think artists just always assume that they're on the left. Yeah. I mean, you go back to the 80s and it was Jesse Helms and it was Christian conservatives and it was, you know, Republican legislators trying to legislate against the arts and defund the NEA and, uh, you know, punish artists for indecency, for indecent, you know, cultural works and that sort of thing. So exactly. I think it's just sort of built in that if, if the Republicans or, you know, anyone who's not a liberal is on uh, one side, we're on the other side, like we are the left, but it's people have had to really unpeel themselves from those assumptions. I think it's been hard for a lot of people in academia and in media in general, in general. And so, yeah. Uh, well, so I'm curious, when you were speaking out, what was the mood among your dancers? Did they know what you were doing? Did they have thoughts about it? Did they disagree with you at all? I actually have no idea. Um, I, the, my intent was to keep this entirely separate from them because that was the principle from the beginning is this is about art. You're, we're here to do ballet and we're not here to be political. So I just did this and I was always clear when I was speaking out, this is me speaking, it's not the company. And so we just don't, we never talked about it despite being quite close. I have one friend in the company that I'm close to that I've, I've spoken to about it uh, just on a personal level, but in general, I really don't have any idea. So even the people who were calling you crying because they were being threatened with these lists, being put on these lists, they they haven't been worrying about what you've been saying? I don't know. Maybe they have. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't talked to them about it. And I think that, you know, 
my sense, which could be entirely wrong, is that they appreciate that this is not part of our studio life. Uh, that when we're there, we're we're doing work, and we're all just so happy to be doing it. So, can you talk a little bit about just sort of the history of? race and racial discussions in the dance world. You know, obviously ballet has traditionally been very white. I'm also remembering, I think it was like in 2014 or something, there was that Under Armour ad with Misty Copeland, the ballet dancer. Do you remember this? I don't actually. I I'm notoriously media dumb. Go ahead. You were not. Yes, you were too busy actually dancing to sit around and watch television ads and come up with highfalutin critiques of them. But anyway, uh, yeah, so Misty Copeland was a, a a ballerina. I think she was black or mostly black. And yeah, there was a whole, she was a spokesperson for Under Armour, which was like a athletic kind of undergarment company of some I do sort. know Armour, Under Armour. Under Armour, okay. I have, yeah. <laughs> okay. So all the, all dancers were Under Armour, obviously. Okay, so it was, she's, we see her in the ad and she's dancing and it's, there's a voiceover of what we are told was a rejection letter from like the first company she ever auditioned for, or, you know, a a major ballet company. And the letter says you have the wrong body for ballet. And then Misty Copeland's voice says, I think every woman has her version of that rejection letter. I was told I wasn't good enough. I couldn't succeed, but I willed myself to where I am now. And this was very moving. This was like in the age of the kind of all, you know, the beginning of the body acceptance movement. The I think the Dove ads were starting around that time, maybe maybe a little before that or a lot before that. But anyway, I feel like I remember that it was later revealed that this rejection letter never happened. This was a fiction that was invented for the sake of this marketing campaign. But like, oh, wow. what what do you know about racial... the the sort of racial undertones of hiring practices in dance, because I I would have to imagine, especially in ballet, there has been racism. Certainly at a, you know, at a time when racism was sort of embedded into the, the fabric of American society. I know that George Balanchine in 1957 choreographed a ballet called Agon and he had a, a black woman or a black man and a white woman dancing together. And it was a very sensual uh, pas de deux. It also happens to be like the great masterpiece of the 20th century uh, in, in dance. Um, not for that reason, but simply for the, the quality of the art itself. And I know that he faced a lot of backlash and I know that he stood up to it. He, um, I think that, I forget who it was that told me this, but that he was sent a lot of letters and, and, and he, they would go on, go, they would go on television. And he would be told, you know, we can't have Arthur Mitchell, who is the, the male dancer, dance. And he said, well, he dances or we all dance or he doesn't, essentially. I'm sorry, we, if either he dances or none of us do, <laughs> that kind of thing. So uh, certainly there was at that time. At the time that I was coming up in dance, I actually started very late. I started when I was uh, about 20. And I did not get that sense at all. In fact, I remember being told one time... There was a, an incident when um, in a company I was in where one dancer had threatened another and someone I was close with. And uh, I thought that the dancer was behaving in a way that was not acceptable and dangerous. And I said, look, if this person's allowed to continue on, I'm afraid that we can't uh, meet another dancer. And um, this uh, 
person told me, I, I, you're right, and we should let this person go, but uh, Black dancers are very good for grants. Wow. And I was like shocked. Not First of all, that he would make the decision based on that, but that, so it, that was like back in 2000. Let's talk about your background in dance. You started relatively late. You say you were 20 when you started. What was that about? How did that happen? Well, I was a really uncoordinated kid. <laughs> so I didn't naturally gravitate towards things that required a lot of coordination. Also, you know, I grew up in Fullerton, California. It just wasn't a, a cultural thing that you put your, your boys in ballet. I remember my sisters, one of my sisters taking ballet and maybe picking her up from ballet class one time. I was always super fascinated with it. I thought it was like this beautiful mystery. And then in college, I saw, hey, I can take this as an elective. That sounds great. And so I did. And then somebody said, you can do this as a career if you want to. Really? They said that even though you were a beginner. That's amazing because you really, it's such a gate-kept world. I'm really surprised. It is. I mean, there is a strong need for reasonably tall men in ballet. So I, I would definitely had opportunities that um, women at my age starting would not have. And I read somewhere that you were taking classes like with five-year-olds when you were a 21-year-old man. Not five-year-olds, but like probably like seven to nine-year-olds. Yeah, it was a little, it was a little embarrassing. Seven to nine-year-old girls, presumably, and this like man in his early 20s. Well, I'm not sure how that would fly today. (laughs) Yeah. But what was that like? You say you were uncoordinated. Did you just suddenly become much more coordinated? Like that's how did how did that all transpire? Well, I think it was two things. I think that I matured late in a lot of ways. (laughs) Still am. But um, the other was that I uh, with sports, it was like, hey, go take this ball and go out there and get it done. And I was always bad at that. But with ballet, it was so specific and so scientific that I could sort of use my brain to train my body. And uh, so I still wouldn't say I'm an athletic person, but I was able to sort of learn athleticism through ballet. Oh, that's fascinating. So how long did it take you to become proficient? When were you a quote unquote professional? Well, I, I would say that question is still unresolved. Um, I, I, w- I don't say I was ever proficient. I became a, a like a full-time professional uh, within about three or four years. But one of the reasons that, well, first of all, I think I'm more creatively oriented than I am athletically oriented, even though I'm very musically and dance oriented. So I, I love, love, love dancing. Uh, but Ballet requires this like buildup of muscle memory over a series of years that is very difficult to do in a short time. So whenever I was dancing, it wasn't like I could go out and just like, all right, man, now I can listen to music and dance. It was more like, okay, I'm trying to remember what every single appendage of my body is doing at the same time. You weren't fluent, so to speak, or you weren't thinking in the language. It's yeah. like speaking a, a new language, but you still have to translate yeah. and, in your brain. Well, I'm a choreographer now, but and and I would say that I'm I'm definitely fluent. Uh, but physically, if I were to go do it, you know, I would say that my body would still lag behind. So, talk about your company, American Contemporary Ballet. You're based here in LA, and you spoke mm-hmm. a little bit earlier about what your sort of overall 
philosophy as your approach, but but say more about that. It's very, I hate to use the word accessible when talking to a fine artist because it sounds like you're telling them they're, they're, they're like a Philistine or something, but it is, it's a very, um, you seem to have a, an approach where it's, you're, you're entertaining people as much as anything else. Yes. And I think the best classical work has had that impetus. I mean, when Mozart was writing piano concertos, when Shakespeare was writing plays, they were trying to entertain the audience. And I sort of have a, a private motto, which is immediate accessibility with kaleidoscopic depth. I think there's there's no reason accessibility has to be on the opposite end of the spectrum of good work. And and if it's not, if the work isn't also good, I don't think you know, you're gonna last very long because it's it's just gonna be facile and, and people aren't gonna be that interested. So, but I wanna be entertained. You know, I I really I don't wanna make work for the ballet audience because it's it's a very small demographic i wanted to create an, an audience that you know it's like look at what the elements of ballet are you have these beautiful creatures that move beautifully that are dancing moving to music in this inspiring way there's no reason that that shouldn't be incredibly popular unless you're doing it in a way that really belongs to another century so I think the 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 goal of of a good classical artist. I I, th I think that any artist should do two things. They should completely uh, assimilate everything that's come before them, so they can take the greatness of the past and and use it. Otherwise, you're just starting from zero, uh, and you're going to repeat old mistakes, even old victories. And then the other thing is to make it so that it feels immediate and relevant for for audiences today. I think that that's the the ideal. God, I never thought of that. You're right. Something like ballet, it is so obviously beautiful and it's so obviously spectacular. It is a spectacle, but it's regarded as sort of fusty. Like what was the I feel like were the 80s, the 1980s, was that a kind of heyday for like little girls being interested in ballet and there being an appetite for it? Or was that just sort of a second wave of the 20th century? I mean, the, the, the 20th century may have been the great golden age of ballet in some senses because of uh, George Balanchine, who was the, like the Michelangelo of ballet, yeah. uh, you know, for centuries. But it, to me, it seems like for some reason, little girls are always interested in ballet. They see the adult dancers out there and they just like our we don't use a proscenium meaning that like the audience is essentially in the same space as the dancers and after our nutcracker the, when the audience gets up we don't bar them from going on the floor and without question or, or without uh, exception every kid rushes that floor and wants to start dancing around so the the thing that worries me is that the economics of ballet are so poor that you know our dancers get offers for acting for modeling for all sorts of other things and it you know while they are, their passion is ballet it's hard to turn down a much larger paycheck and so i think that i would say little girls are still interested in ballet um some little boys too but it's you have to you know really assume you're going to take on a certain kind of life if you're going to do it professionally and it's a super super risky career so Half of what I, I'm trying to do is just change the economics of the thing so that people that want to do it don't feel like they have to sacrifice their financial and potentially health future to do it. And how are you doing that? Like 
paying them more or what do you mean? <laughs> Not yet. Um, the, I think that it's, um, it's a combination of, I mean, first of all, you have to have the audience. If the audience is interested, the rest comes. So uh, my goal, my first thing has been to make something that just the general audience wants to see. And we've done that. And then from there on, it's about just building the business in such a way that people are looking and becoming aware of a type of dance that isn't distant from them. You know, like Fred Astaire, to bring him up again, was clearly not only one of the greatest dancers ever, if not the greatest, uh, but made dance in such a way that it was accessible to everybody. Nobody watches a stair dance and says like, oh, I don't get, I don't get it. I don't get dancing. <laughs> right. I don't get what that right. is. The problem with ballet is actually this. It takes, you know, as, as the technique has gotten more and more intense, like if you think of the Olympics, you know, like people are running faster than they ever have and jumping higher than they ever have. That the technique has gotten so thoroughly intense that the idea of actually dancing is being forgotten. And while ballet technique is impressive, it doesn't like hit you in the gut. It doesn't make you think like, oh my God, I've got to see that again. It's like, oh wow, that's, that's amazing. Ballet is built on two opposites. If it's done well, it's built on two things that are utterly opposite. One is the most highly conscious preparation, and the other is the most unconscious, impulsive execution. When those two things happen, it is one of the most emotionally overwhelming, inspiring, gut-wrenching, not wrenching, that's not even the right word, just uplifting and and um, impactful things that you can see. But, you know, I guess we could be on two ends of the spectrum if we were going to give up one of those. We could have dancers who are very impulsive and not have a technique that was allowing what their movement was doing to translate to the audience effectively. Mm -hmm. Or you could have a technique that is super effective and lose all the impulse. And that's, I think, where we are. That's fascinating. And I think you also see that in musicians sometimes, people with incredible Absolutely. technique. They just are not inherently musical or they have sort of not tended to their musicality because they're so focused on technique. Ballet is essentially music. It's just a visual music. It's funny because a lot of musicians don't like dance. My father was a um, musician and he used to say, <laughs> he used to say he was a very curmudgeonly person. He said, why would you ruin a perfectly good piece of music with, by putting dance to it? <laughs> it's just and you know, he was probably right because most of the time the dance is unmusical and then it, it creates this like cognitive dissonance while you're watching it. That's just awful. But when it is musical, it enhances it. Stravinsky thought that Balanchine enhanced, brought acceptability to his new music by pushing it up like 10 years. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's true. It, it's, it, it, he was right, and, but I wish he had been able to see something that uh, showed him what was possible. Now, what do you think of the Nutcracker? Is that like a good piece of work in your opinion? Well, it depends on what you mean. Um, the Nutcracker... It premiered in the late 19th century, and it was a flop. Uh, George Balanchine with the New York City Ballet made it what it is today. So when now we associate Nutcracker with Christmas, that was him. And uh, his choreography is extremely good. It's actually not my favorite ballet of his uh, by a long shot. And, but uh, the music for the Nutcracker is remarkable. Interesting note, Tchaikovsky did not want to write it, but did. And we. so what we did was we changed the nutcracker we, we basically 
the, the Nutcracker is like watching someone go to a party in the 19th century and then have a dream in the 19th century. And we changed it so the audience is experiencing the dream themselves. We take, we're in a skyscraper and we snow in the entire thing. So you're like inside a snow globe and you're eating the things that you're watching. Nutcracker, the dances are built on candies. So it's, um, a, we, it's another thing that we've done that has made it accessible for people. But the music, I mean, the most, the best music from Nutcracker is not what you always hear in the commercials and things. The best music from Nutcracker <laughs> is the Waltz of the Snowflakes and the uh, Grand Pas de Deux, which is just utterly gut-wrenching. I it's used that word dancing. before. Not the, not the, <laughs> well, gut-wrenching. All that candy will wrench your guts. So, yeah. so the, da- the <laughs> dance true. of the Sugar Plum Fairies is not the, the finest uh, musical oh, it, section. That, of that the, is uh, a great piece. But, no, uh, that's, that's the only that's the one everybody thinks of. No, I, Yeah, because I wonder what dancers and choreographers think of the Nutcracker because it's like the basic... It's just, it's the basic bitch of ballets, right? Let's face it, so. I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, except the music is so good that they, like our dancers still love like dancing to it every time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so talk about your recent productions at your company. I know you had a a piece about devoted to burlesque or the concept of burlesque uh, earlier this year. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So the best way I can describe this is burlesque like David Lynch might do burlesque. Um, <laughs> it is, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I like using things that are, I like using known dance forms essentially so that the audience can wrap their mind around something and then play with that concept. So, you know, in traditionally you have burlesque, you have a series of solo female dancers and the goal is for them to finally remove most of their clothes. For me, I wanted the mystery to deepen as the the piece went on. And so it is a series of solo female dancers doing solo dances, but uh, you have to come see it. But I assure you, it's not like any burlesque show you've seen. And, and, and my goal was not like, I don't think burlesque, like, I guess you build a kind of in traditional burlesque, you build a kind of plot or a drama out of the woman removing her clothes. So you can sort of feel a forward motion, but the end result is essentially defeating of the the purpose itself. Because once it's once that's all gone, the mystery's gone, and there's nothing you know left to left to play with. And so, I think that uh, the idea of I kind of wanted to have them reveal their souls rather than their bodies. And I know you have a production about Fred Astaire. I, I think by the time uh, this this interview posts, I think that that will, the, the, the run will be over, but um, I know as we speak, you have that going on and I'm hoping to come see it soon. Tell us about, about that show. Well, I started doing Fred Astaire repertory uh, in 2014 when I discovered Fred Astaire, believe it or not, I you know discovered him quite late and um, I saw it and I had thought George Balanchine was the only great choreographer of the 20th century. And then I saw Astaire and I was just like knocked out of my chair. He's known as a great dancer, but his choreography will become repertory. I think standard repertory because it's so good. It's just like, you know, Shakespeare thought he was writing plays for the theater. Mozart thought he was writing piano concertos for his own concerts. He didn't really imagine, oh, you know, this is going to live forever. But I think Astaire's choreography will live forever. Are you talking about his, sorry, are you talking about the choreographer he was, choreography he was doing for himself or like, or he wasn't like doing choreography for other dancers or anything like that. 
No, no, it was on himself and his partners. So like him and Rita Hayworth or him and Ginger Rogers. And so, and I found that not only do I learn a great deal from it, but the dancers learn from it. Because when you strip away all the big tricks from ballet, then you're left with only the music. And so they learn how to be much more nuanced. So it's been a great way for the the dancers to develop and people just love seeing it because it's so good. Well, while I have you here, I want to ask you a question about Fred Astaire. So we hear it's like a, it's just a kind of idiom almost at this point. Whatever Fred Astaire could do, Ginger Rogers could do backwards and in heels. And I think the assumption is like, oh, well, he wasn't really so great because she was just as good, but doing it under harsher conditions. Uh, tell us if wh- why that statement is inaccurate, if if in fact it is. Well, backwards and high heels is no joke. But if you look at his dances with his partners, and then you look at them dancing without him, you can see a huge difference. So he was the one that was infusing them with this intense musicality. I mean, he was notoriously a hard worker. He would prepare for weeks on a couple of measures of music. He would call his partners in the middle of the night with a new idea. And he was essentially teaching that, like, look at Rita Hayworth dancing on her own versus dancing with Fred Astaire. I mean, when she's dancing with Fred Astaire, it's just like, oh my God, this is the greatest female dancer I've ever seen. <laughs> and then, But it, it was really him developing them. So not to say that their job was easy. Like, I would not want to dance in high heels. Um, but he, it, I assure you, he was uh, a rare creature. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. We're gonna, I'm going to keep you for some overtime, as I have been doing. But before we wrap it up, I just want to make sure we cover everything about your, your recent incarnations as a free speech hero. I mean, what has it been like to be somebody who speaks out? Have you, do you feel like you're a lightning rod or does this feel like a kind of new chapter for you? You know, it feels amazing just from, not from the, the risks, you know, I mean, you know, I, I always wonder, you know, is this going to be the thing that I say that, that gets me killed? But the very first thing that I did when I was invited on that first podcast, I was preparing before the podcast because I was like, oh my God, you know, if, if I say something the wrong way, it can be taken out of context. And, I, you know, I, I was pretty sure my career was going to be over when I, when I did it. Wow. Um, but at a certain, and so I was like trying to think of how I, how I could prepare. And then I thought, wait a minute what am I doing? I became an artist because I have these things that I want to put out into the world that really take a lot of soul searching. And here, I'm not even saying what I think. So from that moment forward, I vowed kind of not to think. And I, I vowed to always speak my mind. And it was a very emotional experience, actually, because I hadn't realized the degree to which I had been self-censoring and at that moment, I realized the consequences didn't matter because I had already done something that was so much worse to myself. So I'm very happy to be able to contribute to a cause and to hopefully have people, you know, I would like to succeed because then I think other people can look and say, okay, he spoke his mind and he succeeded. He wasn't, you know, banished. Mm-hmm. but for myself, it was the best thing I've ever done. And in in some ways, not even in some ways, I feel lucky because 
you don't realize when you don't face resistance, you, you never really have the opportunity to define yourself. Right. And that has been a remarkable gift. God, I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking like, maybe this is the way to talk to artists about the importance of speaking up because it really, it's an extension of their art. Speaking up about your values, even if it means consequences, that is that takes courage, but it also takes like a leap of imagination and and faith, right? Like it, it's tapping into the same impulses that an artist does. Yes, but we just often don't think of it that way. We think of these as two separate spheres. Yeah, and I don't think they are. I, I think that I I actually started to worry that. I always think if you're not being as honest as you can, that it would blunt the artistic instrument because discovering what you like and what of your thoughts are exciting you is part of making good art. Have you faced consequences? Have you been penalized in any way? I mean, yeah, we've had donors disappear. I've had, you know, we, I, I had this project that was a, during, um, the, during 2020, the company couldn't dance. And I thought, oh, what if we do a short film based on our very unique version of part of our very unique version of the Nutcracker? And I had this way of doing it that made it really cinematic that I thought would translate to film. It was kind of like a new thing for cinema, actually, that I hadn't seen done. And so, I wrote this short script and I went to an agency that put projects together and they really liked it. And they said, you know, we want to put this together with a director. What kind of director do you like? And I thought they were asking me for a list of like a type of director so that they could find a director that kind of directed in that style. And so I gave them a list and they went to those actual directors. And suddenly some of the biggest directors in Hollywood were considering this thing, people that I had looked up to so much. But then it came down the line, not from any of the directors, but from him and the other people involved in putting the project together that I would have to replace some of my dancers with dancers hired for their race. And so I said, I'm not going to do that. And he said, if you say that, you'll never work again. And I said, well, essentially, I'm saying it. And that was the end of that. So there's been a lot of grants we've not been able to go to. There's been a lot of people that won't even work with I've, I've tried to hire some consultants that won't even work with us because of my position on this so i've i've had to do a lot of my own but i think that um those are the ones those are the consequences that i know about but at the same time some people have written and said how much it's it's meant to them that someone has said something so that's also been very good and did they say why they won't say anything <sighs> you know um some of them have and the other ones, I mean, it is super real. Like I am in the position, I've always been sort of an independent worker. So I'm in a position like my view is I would rather be doing good work with two dancers in a garage than I would be doing compromised or poor work on the world's biggest stage. But I think for people that maybe came by their careers in ways where they were hired by other people or they're, it's dependent on other people. I mean, I'm dependent on other people. You know, I, I have to get money and I obviously all these things, but I mean, it's very real that they could never work again. So I, I don't want to criticize anybody for it. Well, and I, I don't know what your like 
personal situation is or if you have dependents to support. But what, one thing I've been thinking about recently is like those of us who are speaking up, we tend to be in a position where we can, like, I don't have, a, I don't have like, I'm not tied to a university, for instance, or I don't have a full-time job. Nobody's going to come along. I don't have kids. No one's going to get my kid ostracized on the playground because of something that I said. So I think for people who are in that position, it's almost incumbent upon us to, to speak up if we can. On the other hand, you have a company, you do have people dependent on you whose salaries you're paying. So that must be tricky. Well, you know, I, I don't have kids, but, but I don't have kids, but I, I there are the, the dancers. And, um, but my view was, it's either going to be a slow death or a quick one. If I go down this road, I, I'm always looking at what the, the end result of, of making a, a certain choice on principle is. And the thing that they love about this company, the reason they're here would go away if I were to compromise artistically. So my best chance for preserving the thing that they love, that they are here for was to do this. And, you know, when I was, the other thing that when I was looking at this, I was looking at all these people that were speaking out and I thought, okay, there's one of two ways that this goes. Either the country descends into utter tribalism, in which case I'm going to be upset that I didn't speak out, or this thing turns around and I'm going to be the guy that kept my head down while all these other people were risking their necks for the world that I live in. And neither of those, you know, sounded very good. Yes. That's a really good way of looking at it. Well, I'm glad that you're doing it. I loved talking about dance with you. It's really... Oh, I love talking about dance with you too. I don't... It's... I have not had this kind of conversation on this podcast in uh, over two years that I've been doing it. So... Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. And um, thank you for speaking out. I'm going to keep you uh, for some extra content where I'm going to ask some more personal questions and you can dodge them however, however you wish. I'm ready. But in the, okay. And if people want to listen to that, they can uh, subscribe at the Substack as paying subscribers. Otherwise, Lincoln Jones, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Lincoln Jones. He is a choreographer, and he's the director and co-founder of the American Contemporary Ballet in Los Angeles. I will say that I went to a performance of the American Contemporary Ballet a couple of weeks ago here in LA, and it was great. It was amazing. I've never seen anything quite like it. So if you're in town, do check it out. They've got lots of performances coming up, all kinds of different stuff. Okay, what else? Again, if you want to hear the bonus portion of this conversation, go to megandaum.substack.com. I've been posting some new essays there lately. And what else? Philip Roth. If you're going to be, uh, if you're interested in coming to uh, a festival about Philip Roth this coming weekend in Newark, New Jersey, do that. Go to NJPAC. Dot org, and that's where you can find the tickets. I don't think I mentioned that at the top. NJPAC.org, Philip Roth. I will be there. I will be here next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>